Welcome to D3 Glory Days on the Sidious Mag Podcast Network. First take, Chris Chavez. My name is Noah, joined as always by Stu Neustadt. Thanks for joining us again this week. A couple of orders of business to get to, first of all. Our first newsletter is dropping April 13th. There's a link to subscribe so you don't miss it in the show notes, or you can find that on d3glorydays.com. If you'd like to support this podcast, share it with a friend, rate and write a review wherever you're listening. Or if you want to send us a tip, there's a link to our Venmo in the show notes and also d3glorydays.com. Cool. All right, Stu, who do we have on this week? Today, we have the pioneer of D3 women's running, Tori Neubauer. Tori set the gold standard for Division Three running. She set the 3K, 5K, and 10K record while she was in college, and all three records held for about 20 years. In addition to that, she was the first woman to win back-to-back cross-country titles in 1982 and 83. On the track, she won four titles across the 3K, 5K, and 10K. In essence, she didn't lose a national meet at the Division Three level. She was a great story to just hear how her dreams and aspirations of going D1 quickly fizzled away after she went to a cross-country camp at UW Lacrosse. We had an honest conversation about her atypical eating patterns in college and how it affected her after she graduated and went on to run post-collegiately qualifying for the Olympic trials a couple times. We hope you enjoy this one. She brings a lot of perspective into the sport and how she was able to become such a force to be reckoned with in D3. Sit back, relax, enjoy the conversation. Check out the show notes, check out our website, d3glorydays.com. Thank you guys for the enthusiastic support last week when we made the announcement of joining Sidious Mag Podcast Network. That was really cool. But for now, here's to the glory days. All right, welcome back to D3 Glory Days. Today, we're joined by the pioneer of D3 women's running, the gold standard, if you will, Tori Neubauer. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Tori, you graduated from UW Lacrosse and you've paved the way for future generations with a lot of your success and your records. But before we get into that, we have to figure out, you know, why you went to UW Lacrosse, what attracted you there. So if you could take us through the recruiting process and how you ended up there. Okay, so my um, way to lacrosse was a little ironic in a way. I was growing up in Wisconsin and I wanted a D1 scholarship. I really wanted to run for Wisconsin Madison and be a Badger. I was all signed up to go to a cross country camp and I believe it was between my junior and senior year of high school. And just before I was supposed to go to camp, I got this notification saying, that was back in the way of, you know, phone calls or snail mail that my camp was canceled. And so I called um, the coach at lacrosse, which was Gary Wilson at the time, and asked if I could get into the cross country camp. And I think it was like the day or two before it was supposed to start. And luckily for me, I was able to get into that camp. 
I don't know why, but I never opened the letter that was sent to me from lacrosse because I think I was all set on, I'm going to be a D1 runner. I'm not going to go D3 because I really wanted that scholarship and went to camp, um, just fell in love with the, the counselors were all runners from lacrosse that were on the team and just really felt that bond and that that was the right place for me to go. And so I remember after that week long session at lacrosse at the camp, I went home, my parents picked me up and I went home and I'm like, I'm going to lacrosse. And my mom is like, yeah, right. And so that was how I found lacrosse. It was, you know, me being a bad person, kind of in a way of not opening all my letters. I don't know why I didn't open Gary's letter, but um, he was kind enough to let me get into his camp you know, right before it started and it, you know, ended up being a godsend for my career. Can you give the listeners an idea of, you know, what kind of, how talented you were coming out of high school? Were you getting division one offers? Uh, um, were, you, were you on a D1 not trajectory? Really. I, you know, I got like West, West Point and a couple other places. I don't think I was more the late blossomer. So I, qualified for state in track and cross country. Um, the highest I ever finished in cross country was third my senior year, but never really did anything in track. I didn't really have the, I had people that cared, but the coaches at my high school really were like teachers that were, you know, cared about the athletes, but they didn't have that knowledge. And, um, so I, it took several years, even going, getting into a program, um, so I guess, no, I really wasn't recruited. I mean, I think I had reached out to Madison, but, you know, never really, I don't think they were really too interested in, in me. So it was just pure luck that I found the right program and the right coach to um, develop me as an athlete. I feel really blessed and honored that going D3 there, you know, there was, there's some pluses and minuses of being D3, but you're not expected to be this like star, like right when you step on campus and it took me two years of learning how to kind of get that trust um, because I had every, I was done everything on my own and just kind of just listening, taking in uh, everything that coach Wilson was giving myself and the other uh, runners at the school. And then just, all I had to do was like show up. Um, so it was kind of like that mental lift. I don't know if it was ever a, a block or anything, but just getting that trust bond. I think was a big, big thing for me to develop as an athlete because I really, all my success at lacrosse, granted I did well in my sophomore year, but it was all my last two years of college. What was the team like your freshman year? Were there, did you have mentors on the team or did you kind of, you know, how'd you find your way? You know, I would say I was more of a, I mean, I really cared. Our team was a family, but I was like so set on, I want to be the best runner that I can be um, that I kind of was like super individual, even though I was very team oriented, I had a, you know, I had a goal, you know, I want to be the top runner. I want to be in the top seven. You know, I want to go be on the national team. I guess I was just so into, you know, being the best person that I could be that some of those things I think kind of got overlooked. I didn't really have a mentor per se, but the team was always very, very welcoming. I think, me coming in with, it wasn't so much my freshman year because I didn't really do too much my freshman year, but my sophomore year, I started to blossom a little bit more. I ended up being, I believe, the top runner my sophomore year. 
And that kind of caused, I think, some rift in certain personality wise on the team, because, you know, the upperclassmen, here's me, the underclassmen beating the upperclassmen, you know, and it wasn't like people were mean to me or anything, but, um, and it really wasn't that part. I, I guess it was, I always felt welcomed and I always felt like I belonged. So there really wasn't a mentor per se. It was more, you know, me listening to what coach had to say, and then all of us working together as a team. Because the way he ran his programs was it was family and it didn't matter if you were number one runner or number 80 runner. Our teams were always really, really big. It didn't matter who you were. Everybody was an equal on the team. And I think that was part of the success at lacrosse that he carried through over to um, Minnesota when he moved there. Did the excitement that you had coming back from that cross country camp, did that carry over into that first year? I think so. And I think I, you know, I think I had some not really lofty goals, but um, I remember going to camp and I don't know, I, you know, everybody wants to be an Olympian or be this or that. And I remember going to camp and I said to some of my peers that I wanted to go to the Olympics and they're all like, seriously. And they ended, some of those people ended up being my teammates and they're like, we just thought you were just like crazy. You know, and then we ended up being teammates and like, oh yeah, well, I guess maybe those goals weren't too far, you know, far fetched for being, you know, participating in the trials and stuff. And all of it, what's really unique is um, all the people that were teammates with me, most of them I still have contact with. And whenever we get together, it's like that time never went away, you know, 30 years, 20 years, we can all still carry on conversations like we were, you know, had never even um, left each other. So that's a very cool thing that we all had. Um, from being teammates at lacrosse. You mentioned you had kind of early Olympic aspirations. Who were some runners that you looked up to? You know, I don't really know if I ever had a favorite. I know when I was D3, when I started college, I would say Joan Benoit um, yeah. She was a big um, inspiration for me. Other than that, I think I just was like, you know, there were people, but there wasn't really one set person. I just, you know, I just thought it'd be so cool to be an Olympian. Did you know that Joni was division three? Yeah. I mean, I didn't know that until I like, I think it was like my freshman year. And I think one of my older teammates mentioned her name and it was always in the back of my mind and it wasn't like to achieve things. And I never really looked at anything because I was like, so into what I was doing that, um, when I was younger that I didn't really like look at. And that was one thing that Gary, that Wilson taught us is like, say for example, um, in track, he would say, go ahead and look at the heat sheets, just see what time you're running, what heat you're in and just leave it. Whereas in high school, I would go and look at the heat sheets and look at everybody's time and just get psyched out. And that was one thing that he taught me as an athlete was, you know, just look and see when you're running, what heat you're in, walk away. Everybody's an equal when you step on the line. We're limited to the results to only national meets. So take us through that first season. You know, okay. how did it, how'd you progress? So um, my freshman year in cross country, I don't remember how many people are on the team, but the way our program ran at that time was we didn't compete against a lot of D3 teams. The teams that we competed against in cross country and kind of a track too, but um, in cross country, we did very little D3 um, competition. We ran at Iowa State. 
we um, competed against Iowa, we competed against the U of M and then like North Dakota, I mean, South Dakota, North Dakota, we didn't really do a lot of D3 unless they came to like to our invitational. That was one thing that I think he did really well was he, we were at that top level competing against some of the top teams and top runners. Um, so he's like, oh, when you get to nationals, it's just like an invitational. And we're like, uh, no, it's nationals. But, you know, and it was diff different. And like in our conference at the time, um, UW Milwaukee and Marquette were in our conference in the, when I start actually through all four years. Um, and I think initially prior to that, Madison was in the conference that it was in, but it wasn't when, not when I was there. So I think um, being at the level and even like when we had our training camp, we worked out with runners from um, Coach Wilson was really good friends with the former coach at um, Iowa State, Ron Renko, who is now passed. Um, and we ran with some of those young ladies and they also like coming to our facility, which was really not that nice. We had showers and we lived in, stayed in cabins, but we had running water and they stayed in tents. So they, they always thought they loved it when they got to come and train on, you know, on the roads where we were training up in um, northern, northern Wisconsin. But um, as far as like my progress, I think I was always like two or three. And, and then I think well, when we got to like regionals and at that time it was AIAW, all the divisions were all at one site, which was actually a kind of cool thing for nationals. And even though I didn't really pay attention too much, but it was kind of a neat setting where all the women from all different divisions were all in the same place instead of being all spread out all over the place. So when it was AIW, you just had to be like, either you competed D1, D2, or D3, um, or whatever level you were at. But it was kind of cool having all the different runners from all the different schools all in one location. That give you, you know, inspiration. You know, you're, you're a freshman, you finished 56th in the nation, but then you're seeing all these other women in D2 and D1 just crushing it. You know, you had those Olympic aspirations. Was this kind of a motivating event to see? I think I was so much into our team that I didn't really pay attention to the other results. Um, you know, we, I wouldn't say that we were, we were sheltered, but we kind of had our own little way of doing things. So I don't think that we really, even though I had aspirations of always being better, I don't think I really paid too much attention to the other races. I don't remember like going, thinking back, I'm like, wait a minute, we we're all in the same place. How come I don't remember any of that? So it's kind of strange that I don't remember any of those things. Obviously for a collegiate runner, you know, running takes up the bulk of their collegiate experience. But when you first got to college in the first year or two, what, what else were you excited about outside of running or did you have a pretty narrow focus? Uh, I was very narrow. I was very narrow-minded. It's like, you have to have other things in your life. And I'm like, I do, I do, I do. But in all reality, no, I did not. It was all running. Yeah, I think a lot of us can relate to that. We're always, oh, we're very well-rounded, but we're, you know. <laughs> I mean, to this day, stats. as an adult and being older, I really don't think I'm well-rounded. I say that I'm better, but I really don't think I am. I'm, I usually am like, like after I stopped competing and then got married and started a family, then I like focused all that on my two children. And now that they're older, I'm like, okay, well, now what am I going to do when I'm grown up, you know? And I'm still trying to get that answer. I don't know. I mean, from being one of those people that says that they're well-rounded, I've always been single focused and um, that can be a plus and it can be a minus. 
Yeah, I was going to say, to what extent do you think that was beneficial in your running? I think with my running, I think it's good in certain ways, but then I think you um, you tend to focus, and I did this more in high school than in college, but you relate as you, as a person, like all you know of yourself is being a runner. And then when that kind of goes away, then you're like, okay, who am I now? You know, and I guess I never really that didn't happen to me at first. What happened was I competed after I stopped competing while, well after, you know, after college, some of the people that I associated with, um, it was like, I almost fell off the end of the earth, but my true, what I, I'm like, well, then maybe those weren't like true friends or true acquaintances, but all my college teammates have always been there for me, no matter what you get that identity that you're just a runner And then when you quit competing and you're not as successful, you kind of like lose some of that. Like I so miss that competitiveness and being at races and being at meets and those kind of things, but yet I'm still happy. So I think that's the most important thing is to, you know, be at peace with yourself um, and to move on. Did your teammates carry that same, you know, uh, narrow-mindedness without with with running during your time there? I don't believe so. I think I was just one of those crazy, unique <laughs> people that had those high goals because people are like, seriously? You know, I think they all had goals, but I don't think they were as narrow-minded as I was. And I could have been so super focused on my own goals and what I wanted to do that I maybe missed some of those things as well. So as, as you mentioned, you had, you know, modest success your, your first year, um, you know, moving forward into your sophomore and then especially into your, your junior year when you started really having success, how, how were you evolving as an athlete? I think it was just a, you know, that natural process of that trust and building that trust in that relationship with coach Wilson that really like catapulted me and, um, I remember running my sophomore year at AIAW and my goal was top 10. That's what our goal was. Cause we always had like meetings prior to, you know, we had go through the race plan, you know, we'd have individual meetings and I'm like, yep. And he agreed with me. Yep. Your, you know, goal top 10, that's realistic. And then I remember running and I can still to this day, remember just running. And I knew I was in the top 10 cause I'm sure a coach or somebody told me that I was top 10. But I know that I could have finished higher. I had so much left when I finished, you know, and you go back and you're like, well, I could have done better, but, you know, I still was happy with what I did. But I think sometimes you, if you haven't had that success and then it's like there and you can just taste it, you almost are like, okay with, all right, I'm in the top 10 or, you know, whatever your place is. Um, And then I think moving past that, I, you know, I would set, like, I remember my senior year at D1 um, in cross country, my goal was to um, be in the top 10. And coach was like, I don't know. He said to me after, I don't know if that was really a smart thing and, or whatever, or top, well, his goal was top 25. And I think, I don't know what my goal was. I, I can't remember what it was. But um, I actually was like ninth going into the last, I don't know, however many meters and two Stanford runners passed me, Patty Sue Plumber, and I can't remember who the other person was. And I had no idea what place I was. 
And then I finish and I see my place card and it was 11 and the coach from Iowa, Nandoke was the winner that year. And he was like more excited about my finish than he was about Nan's finish. And I'm like, oh my gosh, 11th place. This is just, it was just crazy, you know, knowing that, you know, I did as well as I did. It's not that the talent wasn't there. And I think for me, my mental toughness superseded my physical abilities. And I think that's really, I really believe that's what, um, I'm not saying I didn't have the physical talents or the natural abilities, but that mental strength that I had really was my strong point in running. To take you back before that 11th place finish at mm-hmm. D1 nationals, you had to win D3 nationals, Correct. which you did as a junior, you know, what was your sophomore year track season like you know we know you finished sixth at cross country during your sophomore Mm -hmm. year but what helped you get that leap to become a national champion Kyle you know I don't know I think I had success at that that was the last year of AIAW for us outdoors and um our team won that year and I I think I was like third or fourth or I don't even remember what my places were I placed in both the 3k and the 5k And, um, I don't know. I think it was just that belief that I could be better. And I don't think that aspiration of winning nationals was there, um, until I started doing better, like during the season, I would, you know, I just kept getting better and better. And then our goal as a team going into that, that national meet and, uh, 82 was to win nationals. And the morning of the race, we ended up having six out of seven runners. That was before you could have like alternates like they have now. We didn't have that opportunity to have that. So we had a very, we had a talented team and we had quite a few freshmen on the team. And so one of our, I don't remember if she was like our third runner or second runner, she kind of alternated and she came in the same year as I did. Her name was Andrea Bauer and she was from lacrosse and she ended up having the flu. And so we had to race with six runners and it was a very unique. I remember going over the course. It had been really rainy there. It was at, I think Fredonia, it was somewhere up in upstate New York and the conditions were just crazy. We had like duct tape on our spikes and I just remember running and clinging kind of gripping with my toes, um, to keep my spikes on. And it was funny because I was running and it was probably the most fun race that I ever had collegiately because you couldn't run fast because the conditions were so poor. I don't even remember how many inches. I mean, there was just muck mud everywhere. It was just gross. I mean, I, and I think I won nationals with like an 1845 and that was a national record. And I'm like, seriously, that was a national record. But, um, I would say that was probably my most fun race because you couldn't run any faster. It was just keeping your mind on what was going on and to keep putting one foot forward to get to the finish line without losing your shoe or falling down or whatever it was. And then we had the same couple of days later when I ran at D1, actually I had the whole team there and I just remember being panicky that I would get sick too, even though I was in a round, I didn't room with her at nationals, but I was like, Oh no, what if I get sick? And but it was really cool because my whole team was there with me at that D1 meet. But I just remember being like super scared at that meet because it's like, you know, all the big dogs are there. And 
here's little me with my UWL uniform on. And I like, he, my coach is like, you looked so scared. And I mean, I'm sure I ran scared. I mean, I still, I think I finished like 51st or something like that. But after that, I don't think I was as scared anymore. Cause I had, you know, and I had run against D1 runners, but it's just a whole different thing when you're, when I was so used to running at D3 or even at some of my meets, I'd always be out in the front and not be in a pack. And here you're in this pack and you're jostling around. And he's like, use your elbow, use your elbow. And I'm like, I wasn't one of those kind of runners, even though I ran with my elbows out, it wasn't because I was trying to like, you know, get space or anything. But I just remember being at that meet and it was so scary, even though I had, you know, had all my teammates and my coach with me. I mean, it sounds like, you know, at the D3 meet, you mentioned your mental toughness has made your greatest asset as an athlete. It sounds like that kind of applied perfectly to the conditions that you ran in that day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's that's interesting. I love to hear stories like that. And, you know, I think maybe now is kind of a good time to talk about how, you know, winners of Division Three national championships were invited to D1 national championships because, uh, you know, listeners now probably know that that no longer happens. And Correct. And I think as division three athletes, there's always that chip on our shoulder. Like, you know, I wonder how I'd stack up in, in D one. I mean, it's really cool that you, you really had that opportunity to, to answer that question. And, um, you know, you ran great. What what was it like to turn around so quickly after like the high of a division three championship to, cause it it was a matter of days, right? Yeah. So we ran on Saturday and then you traveled Saturday into Sunday, and then Monday you raced again. Um, so there really wasn't much of a turnaround. So I remember just saying, Oh, I just have another race. You know, what do you, you know, we you mentally just have to like shot off. Okay. I won nationals. I've got another race and just, you know, flip that around, have your race plan, go into it. It was a lot easier. My senior year, I remember running and it was a very flat course at D3. And I remember seeing the time and, um, I could have went under 16 minutes and he's like, hold back, hold back, hold back, hold back. And I had, it was so hard not to like press because I really wanted to be under 16 minutes. And then I had to like tell myself, okay, coach knows best. I just have to, you know, I just have to cruise into the finish. I've got another race and, you know, another day. So I just, and I don't know how much, if I would have ran harder, how much harder, if that would have affected me or not, you know, you never know. Cause that was in the past, but I always knew that if, if coach was telling me to do something, he knew best and I best listened to what he has to say. At D1s, were you paying special attention to the Badger women? Not really, but I remember at the awards, um, Peter Teagan was the coach at the time. And if I would have been on the team, they would have won nationals. And so that coach Wilson is like, hey, Peter, you know, you could have won nationals if you would have taken Tori. But it was sweetest, really neat. the sweetest revenge. Yeah. But the, the cool thing was, is that um, I remember at the awards and I mean, recognition is always really cool, but it was really neat of uh, the people that were doing the presenting to recognize me as a D3 athlete and just say, you know, she just ran, a, you know, a day ago and here she is. She ran today. I didn't feel like as as much as an as an outsider, whereas I ran track, um, you basically were. And track is a whole different ballpark because everybody's all over the place compared to cross country. We're all doing the same thing, but I always felt like I was kind of a foreigner or like a foreign athlete because you didn't get recognized if you, no matter how you finished. 
And I think that's part of the reason why they, um, why it changed that they didn't want D3 runners running. It was kind of like, oh God, they're invading our space and they're taking up an all American status. And I don't think they really liked the little guys beating the big guys. I mean, I, I hate to say it that way, but um, that's kind of how coach put it to me at one time. He's like, yeah. And, and when I was a D3 runner, there were many runners like Deb Thomas from St. Thomas and several others. I mean, there are many people that could have ran D1. It was so deep when I was in D3. The talent was just so deep. So not only were you able to run D1, but it looks like you also competed at the NAIA yep. Indoor National. So how does that, how does that work? Uh, well, I think you just had to have a qualifying time at that time. There was, well, maybe NCAA did exist at the beginning. I don't remember if it existed or not. I think NCAA, when it came into play, cause that was, um, that was my junior and senior year. Um, I know NCAA wasn't, it was in its infancy. Uh, so it wasn't as good of a competition as the, as the NAIA meet, because you're running against people that were getting scholarships there. And so I think it was a much tougher meet. And then we didn't, lacrosse was pretty much forced to either uh, to go NCAA or do the NAI. And at one time we were having like, uh, even when it, I don't even know if it was AIAW, but when we went NCAA, we had seven runners at NCAA and that was our top seven. And then our second seven would run at NAI for cross country. But um, the NAI was a pretty, you know, I think maybe for some of the sprinters and some of the shorter distance runners, even for the middle distance and distance runners, it was a very good field because it was, you know, not only like D3 schools, but then you had um, like in our conference, we had Marquette, Milwaukee, and then you had some of the other like Michigan schools. And I just think the competition was tougher until it, um, and I don't think lacrosse went to NCAA until after I left. Did you ever think about jumping into the division two championships just to like hit all of them? <laughs> I don't know if that was even an option. <laughs> I don't know. That that it, was either, interesting. it sounds like you were kind of all over the place. You might, you should have tried. I don't even know if that was an option at the time. I don't, I don't know. Coach was kind of the, he took care of all that stuff. <laughs> I just ran. We're going to have to look that up to see which athlete has run in the most divisions. I think you might be leading right now with, with what you've done. After, after you won your first cross-country title, that didn't seem mm-hmm. like it was enough. You then had an amazing track season and began setting the standard for women's D3 running. You set two records in 1983 and, yeah, in the 5K and the 3K. Mm-hmm. Along the way, though, you had you mentioned Deborah Thomas from St. Thomas. You know how much of that played into you guys going back and forth trying to battle out to set the record. I don't know. I think I remember knowing of her from cross country because we really didn't compete much with St. Thomas because we did so much D one um, competition, whether it be in track and cross country. Um, we did probably more D one in cross country than in track, but you know we always went to like. Uh, we went to like the Drake Invitational. And then if we qualify for Drake Relays, we got to do that. And we didn't have the strange thing is at lacrosse, we had an indoor track and we had no outdoor facility. We had the cinder nasty track. And so we did all of our training. We would do our warm up to one of the high schools and train there. And then we'd do our cool down back to campus and move on with our life, go home, study, eat, 
go to classes, whatever it might've been. But I think, you know, Deb Thomas, I mean, I, I knew of other people, but I guess I didn't really pay much attention to other runners. I was so focused on myself and just, you know, being a good student in school and um, just being the best that I could be as a person and as an athlete. I knew of her, but I didn't really know people's times. And I, I mean, I think that's one thing that coach taught me is not to look at what other people were doing, just show up and run your race. What were you majoring in? (laughs) The major that I chose was therapeutic recreation. And I basically chose I was so uber focused on my running. I just chose, chose a major. So after four years, I'm like, why didn't I go into health? Cause I really would have my goal, what I had planned on doing after whatever happened with my running career, I was going to go back to grad school and go into nutrition. Cause I really wanted to go into sports nutrition because there were so many athletes that, um, I was around and I guess I, I wasn't really aware of it, um, with eating disorders. And I, like my last two, and I wasn't like, uh, I had some atypical eating patterns when I was in college and it wasn't so much that I would starve myself. I never, and I still to this day, I'm not a big eater and I kind of have to force myself to eat, but that ended up being a, a play in, in my last, like probably year of school. And it threw a little bit of a wrench into, um, my relationship with coach Wilson I didn't like eating. I usually did doubles and I didn't like eating. I was one of those people. I didn't like eating like breakfast or eating in the morning. And I have roommates that would tell him, he's like, are you eating? And I'm like, yep, yep, yep. I'm eating in the morning. And then uh, it's not that I didn't eat, um, but I didn't eat enough for what I was putting out. And in the long run, it ended up affecting some of my performances, probably towards the end of my senior year. And it definitely affected my relationship with coaches. I remember after our indoor conference meet, I did okay in the two mile. And I think it was the mile the race started and somebody stepped on my foot and it wasn't caught right away. And so he was yelling at me during the race. He's like, new is this a new tactic? And I'm like, how can you? And it was my inside foot. So he could not see that I was running with just one shoe. And I ended up finishing like 10th in the race. Here's, you know, however many time national champion. So that was like the big snafu all over the place is like, oh, national champion finishes, whatever in the conference. And I remember going, um, getting called into his office after that weekend on that Monday. And he's like, close the door. And he never asked me to close the door. I knew that something definitely was up and it was for the best. I mean, he basically told me that if I didn't, he didn't want to talk to me until I went and met with somebody and then came back and had a plan that in until, but then it was regaining that trust back, which I had, you know, for so long with him. And he was like a father figure to me as well. And so that was really, I mean, still to this day, it's still like when I talk about it, that hurt is still there, even though we have a great relationship that was, I felt like I had to keep proving myself. Okay, I'm listening to you. I'm doing what you're asking me to do. And it's not that he ever thought, you know, less of me, but he was doing the best thing that he ever, you know, he could have done for me as a a person by saying, you know, get your act together because health-wise, you know, you need to be healthy. And it was just working through that whole process. 
at that time, were you equating being thin with being fast or did you just not have an understanding of like food as fuel? I think it might've been a little bit of each, but I think it was more the food as food as fuel because when I was in school, there wasn't all that background out there that there is now. So I think it's a little bit of each. It's so easy as whether if you're a male athlete or a female athlete to fall into a, a bad pattern per se. I remember I never, I mean, to this day, I do not even have a scale in my house. I don't even look when I go to the doctor, whatever they say my weight is, I don't even know what it is because it's like, that is it in the back of my head. It's like that fear factor. It's so easy to get caught up in. And I remember weighing myself like twice a day. And it wasn't that I didn't eat anything more or less, but that was that big psychological thing, that number thing. And so we've never, ever even had a scale in our house because that's just one of my big fears. And it's so easy once you've kind of, it's like any other, like an addiction or any other thing that you go through. It's so easy to get caught into one of those patterns. And I think with me being a runner, uh, my husband was a tennis player and I would see the athletes that he was coaching because he's about seven years older than me. And I'd see the tennis players and they'd have these big thighs, you know, and I'm like, oh God, they're fat. And they're really not. I mean, they're just muscular. They're a different type of athlete. I'm like, oh my gosh. It's like, like normal people look at Yeah, it's like, you know, like you're obese. It's like when I, even when I work now, everybody's like, oh, you're so skinny. And I'm like, oh God, you have no idea what I, what I look like <laughs> in college. Granted, I was muscular. So I don't think, I didn't think of myself as being too thin, but looking back, I can say, yes, I was, you know, it, it wasn't a healthy weight. Um, but you don't think of that, that when you're competing. And I think too, I remember my senior year when I was working with a nutritionist on campus or a dietitian, I just didn't have that energy and that ping like I had before. I still was running well, but there just was something that just seemed off. And I'm like, well, I can't. And after college, I'm like, I can't run it that way. Cause I remember gaining because when you really mess up your me- metabolic rate, Um, And I think mine was slow to begin with and just not eating enough, really just all of a sudden I like went from 104 to 110 to 130. And I'm like, how'd that happen? You know? And I'm like, I can't remember working with somebody and I'm like, I can't run it this way. Then they're like, what do you mean you can't run it this way? I'm like, "I I I can't, I just can't, you know, mentally, I just could not associate with running at 130 pounds, even though I was probably that when I started college, but it's like, you know, you you get into that pattern where like at D1, there are so many, I mean, in a D3, you see it as well, but so many, you know, you just had that, everybody kind of had that same, all the distance runners all had that same kind of body type, you know, thin. And, you know, some people were probably too thin where you just think that's how everybody's supposed to be. After that conversation with your coach, you mentioned trust there. How long did it take you to rebuild that relationship? I would say um, it was probably towards the latter part of outdoor. I don't think it ever was the way it was before. Cause I don't think once you break that trust, you can regain that trust, but I think it just wasn't the same. I mean, more of it was probably by myself. I don't think he treated me anything any differently, but I think I always felt like I had to prove myself or just say, Yep. I'm listening. I'm doing what you're asking me to do. I'm, you know, I'm doing what's best for me, but it was more of that mental part. 
because I never had that bond with anybody. And so to lose it, all of a sudden I'm like, oh my gosh, what did I just do? I like totally let him down. And so that was really hard to regain that. I think it was more on my part than his part. I think he welcomed it right away. And I think still to this day with certain things that happen in life, I feel like I always have to like prove myself. At this point in your collegiate career, you're starting to rack up, you know, a lot of wins. You're running well, even at the D1 level. Were you starting to consider a career in running after college or were you thinking that far ahead? Um, yeah, like my senior year, I really had aspirations of um, running for Athletics West. Um, so my my plan was after graduating, like maybe I, I'm trying to think of when I, and I wasn't gone that long, but I moved out to Oregon after I graduated. So I think I moved out like in August or September and just never really found my niche as a runner. I had never been that far away from my coach. I didn't know anybody. Um, when I moved out there, I actually lived with two alumni that had graduated well, well before my, um, they introduced themselves to our team, the, the athletes that were at D1 at um, Eugene, you know, and did some things with our, they're like, oh, we're lacrosse alumni, you know, we'd like to take you out for dinner. And they're like, oh, you're going to move here. And so they like took me in as like, almost like one of their children. And I lived with them for a while and then just moved out with somebody. But I never found that um, I couldn't find a job. I was cleaning houses. I was biking everywhere. My running wasn't going well. And I just felt like there still was something off. And I remember meeting with a sports psychologist and he's like, well, you know, if you're going to leave, I'll get you hooked up with some people and um, came back and to Wisconsin. I was only gone for like six months. So after I like moved everything out there, then I'm like, nope, nope, this isn't where I want to be. So moved back home to my parents in Wisconsin. And then my plan was to, because that's when um, Coach Wilson had gone to the U. So I'm like, I'm going to move to Minnesota. You know, and th there was like probably another six months or eight months before I did that. But in between that time, when they did some blood testing and did some other work, they're like, well, maybe you need to work with um, a psychotherapist because I still had some of those not behaviors, but mannerisms of like the atypical eating. And I remember she was like, well renowned. And I don't remember what her name was, but um, they set me up with this person in Madison. So I would drive twice, a, once or twice a week, I would drive and meet with this woman. She knew even though she had worked run done all these studies and done all this stuff, she knew nothing about running. And so that was really, really hard. And then she was like, Oh, you know, you need to be able to open up to other people. So then if I would share things with coach Wilson, she'd get all mad at me. And I'm like, well, wait a minute, you're telling me that I need to communicate better. And I'm communicating, you're saying no, that's not the right thing to do. And I was like, so confused and so baffled. And I just remember going through the whole thing. They had my parents come in for one of the meetings. And they're like, you know, my parents weren't athletes. So I never had any pressure to do good when I was in high school or college. So in all essence, that was probably a good thing for me because they didn't, they didn't know anything. They're like, oh yeah, she's running really well. This is really cool. We're just proud of her. But part of the problem with eating disorders, it goes back to family. And I, 
So they're like, well, you know, it was this or it was that. And my mom and dad are like, did we do this to her? And I'm like, it was so hard as a family going through that, even though I wasn't, you know, I didn't make my, I didn't like restrict my eating. I didn't do any of the um, laxatives or throwing up or doing any of that kind of stuff. She's like, oh, have you ever done any of this stuff? And I'm like, oh, gross, no way. And I think she was baffled as much as I was. And then I was with on a low tier with Nike and I'm like, I have to compete. And so she's like, well, I didn't have to compete, but I wanted to compete. And so I would like go into road races and she's like, well, can't you just do these local things? And I'm like, well, yes, no, but why would I just want to do these little, you know, piddly runs? You know, why can't I just go run Bellin or do this? And that whole I don't think she really understood the whole, I mean, I think she had the, I believe she had the knowledge, but that whole um, aspect of running and being a competitor, like she basically told me that my accomplishments, my accomplishments in college was just a fluke. And that was so hurtful. And I'm like, how could that be a fluke? You don't win, you know, that many national titles and it just be a whim, you know? So I think that I never really had that trust or respect for her for that aspect. And then she would always get mad if I talked to Gary about things. And so when I knew I was going to move, I just basically said, you know, I'm done. And he was so upset with me. He's like, what do you mean you quit? And I'm like, well, she doesn't want me to do any of this stuff. And so that kind of caused a little bit of a rip, but not a lot. But I mean, she did teach me things, but I remember one of the things she said is she's like, well, um, I don't remember what she said. She's like, she didn't say I wasn't going to be successful in anything at life, but it kind of was there. And the funny thing is after I got married, I don't know how many years after my husband and I were in Alaska and she was there and I'm like, ha, and she didn't notice me or anything, but I told my husband, I go, that's the person that worked with me when I got out of college. And she said that I wasn't going to go anywhere in life. And I go, look at, I'm married. I'm happy. I'm, you know, doing things that I probably never would have thought about doing. Um, and I'm like, ha, proved her wrong. Chuck went up for Tory, you know, you're like, yeah. So that's where that mental toughness comes into play again, you know, and it's, I think a lot of it is just being super um, stubborn as well. You know, well, I'm going to show you, you know, you can't tell me that I can't be successful. Did you end up competing locally or did you finally get to do some races that you uh, wanted to do? Well, when I moved here, I, you know, I had some success. I, I only ran one marathon and I qualified. I ran at Twin Cities and qualified for the trials in 88. Um, but I don't think in all reality, I really don't think, I don't believe that I hit my full potential. I was one of those people that in the spring, when it started getting nice here, even though I was doing hard workouts with the women at the U doing track workouts. And even though I was like running longer distances, I would just get carried away. I could, you know, I would just, I was able to always go out and run a lot of miles. And, um, when I still was on that little small contract with Nike, um, that low end tier, I overtrained, um, came back, but it never was the same. I didn't have that mental toughness and, being at that high of a level in college and having those aspirations of, you know, wanting to be the best that I could, it was really tough mentally to, to compete against other runners that I know that I should be beating and I wasn't beating them anymore. And so I kind of like, I didn't throw in the towel, but I kind of like had to really rethink, okay, 
you know, maybe now is the time to maybe step away, you know, and that was a hard thing to do, but I, I just really would waffle back and forth with, I know I can be better, but at that time I was really struggling and I, you know, it, there were some races I probably shouldn't have run and I should have said, Nope, I'm not going to do it. And I, maybe it would have been better, but it could have been where it just was my time just to step away from everything and find something else to do in life. And I was when really you- lucky at that time. Cause I was dating my husband, my, my partner in, in crime or life. And he was a tennis player and he wasn't at the level that I was at, but he said, you know, I had to step away too. And he said, that was really hard for me and people, other people didn't understand that. Like I worked at a health club at the time and they're like, well, why aren't you running the marathon? You're a runner. You're still running. You're still training. I'm like, well, I'm just running for myself. And I think that's where I found the joy later was just running and enjoying. Cause I, I got to the point where I was hating what I was doing. I didn't quit running but I really was not like loving that love or that passion for running wasn't there anymore. And so that's why pretty much why I stepped away from, from competing was because that, that drive and that love wasn't there anymore. When you made that decision to wind down your career, were you able to give yourself the grace of looking back and acknowledging how much you had accomplished or were you in a headspace that you, you weren't quite ready to process that yet? I don't know if I really ever crossed it, but I remember in this, I can't remember if it was after we had one of the kids or both the kids. I remember going through some of my stuff and I guess I was so upset that I never really reached that full potential. I remember going through some of the things and I had thrown a whole bunch of stuff in the garbage. And my husband's like, what did you just do? He came home from work and he's like, what did you do? And I said, that is in my past. I need to move on. I need to move on. He goes, you're taking some of that stuff out of there. You don't have to keep everything, but take some of that stuff back. Cause you're going to really be upset if, you know, like I didn't take like throw any of my national trophies or any of that stuff away. I don't even know what I even threw away, but I know I threw some stuff away. Cause I think I just needed, I felt like I needed to bury that. And just, I felt like I was almost running away from reality at the time that I was upset that I didn't, that I don't know what my full, that I didn't reach what I wanted to do. And that was kind of my way of dealing with it was just throwing things in the garbage can. And then I don't have to deal with that. But, um, and it took a while too, after I graduated from lacrosse, when coach Wilson moved on, like right after I left, he was in certain ways, he was forced out of, it was the best thing that could have happened for his coaching career was to go on to D one and to be successful there. But I had this big grudge against lacrosse because he was like my father figure. And I felt like he was pushed out and I didn't really even pay attention to lacrosse. I would like look at things and look at results, but I had this big grudge. And the person that brought me back to UWL was coach Stanley reached out to me and he's like, Hey, you know, you know, I'm a, I'm the coach at lacrosse and I really like you to come to the meet and, you know, do all this kind of stuff. And he, it was him reaching out to me that got rid of that grudge. I think the big thing was, is when I was inducted into the U.S. track and field um, hall of fame, when Andrew Rock was that year, nationals was at lacrosse. And I remember sitting up in the, the booth, um, 
looking down on the track, talking to Coach Stanley, and it was so strange. I'm looking up at Granddad's bluff, and it was like that chip off my shoulder. That weight was just gone. I I don't know why that went away, um, but I am so thankful that he reached out to me and that that opportunity came up for me to be in that setting and to go back. Because then after that, I was like, yep, I need to get back. Like he would call me and say, hey, Tori, how you doing? And I'm like, I'm good. It was like, he's like, oh, you know, whatever. And I would just like drop, drop things and go, okay, I'm going to this meet or I'm going to go here. I didn't really always have that opportunity to go to track things, but cross country was a lot easier. And it would just took him calling me on the phone to say, hey, how are you doing? And I go, oh, there's a meet coming up. I'm going to go there. Um, so I'm so thankful that he came to lacrosse and that he reached out. Um, I was, I've been able to have some, some of my, I have friends that are way younger than I am that ran for lacrosse that I'm really good friends with. And it, I'm so thankful that he did that for me. And I still have, I mean, the pandemic hasn't helped with any of that, but um, I go back every year. I think a year ago was the first time I didn't go back for the cross country meet, but I go back every year for that. Uh, a couple of years ago when they had the national track meet, I went in, volunteered and worked at that. And I try to do as much as I can to um, do things for lacrosse, because if it wouldn't have been for lacrosse and giving me those opportunities, I wouldn't have been able to do the things that I did as a runner. So I try to give back as much as I can. It may not be financially, but if it's mentorship or um, going and meeting with the athletes when I can. Um, and I enjoy that. It's really, it's really been fun. How meaningful was it to have a uh, cross country meet named after you? That was really strange. So the year that that happened, um, I also was inducted into the wall of fame at lacrosse. So that same weekend, it was like this big to do like that Saturday was the cross country meet. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? I'm having a meet named after me. I'm still alive, you know, cause whenever you think of things you're it's like people from like the past in it. I think that had been like 10 years after I had been out of college that I was eligible to be inducted into the wall of fame. And it was just, I think it was kind of surreal and I remember being at the starting line and they're like, you're going to start the race. I'm like, I hate the sound of the gun. I'm going to jump. Um, but it was just a, it was just an honor and it's a privilege. It's, it, it's so meaningful to go back now and coach Stanley like puts me on this pedestal and I don't, I like to be recognized, but it's, it's hard to kind of be put on that pedestal. And he like makes a big to do out of, Oh, this is Tori. Why aren't you talking to her? Or when they have the meet, they, they have me go stand out in the, in the middle. And it's like, I'm happy to do it, but in certain ways it's like, Oh God, now these people are staring at me and here I ran in front of hundreds and hundreds of people. And it's just different to be on that opposite side of being the runner or the athlete. It's like, I almost get nervous when they make me, when they ask me to go and do those kind of things, but um, I'm thankful for it. I mean, it's kind of cool, like when you Google your name, obviously like your accomplishments and your biography comes up, but also it's just like a lot of, you know, results from the meets under your name, you know, and, and that's kind of cool. And that's, that's really how runners make enduring legacies. And so that, that's just one thing that struck me while I was doing some research on you earlier. Yeah, it was one thing that was really interesting was um, I never, 
I never, my kids didn't know that I didn't want my kids to feel like they had to be an athlete or to live up to what mom did. And I had one, my oldest was not, and he still to this day is not competitive. He's got the, from us both being athletes, they both have natural abilities. My daughter is uber competitive and she's one of those kids that you put her in anything when she was younger, you'd put her in, if I'm playing tennis, I can do really good at tennis. If I do soccer, I can, you know, I can be on the best teams. And I'm not, and it was so frustrating. She wouldn't even like work out and here my husband and I would like put all this effort into what we were doing to get better. And my daughter would always be on these top teams or, you know, be like, not like a standout, but I'm like, how do you know how lucky you are? But that also can be a stab in the back because I think when you're, when you have those opportunities, when you're always on the top, you don't have, you're not forced to get better or to work harder. And she wasn't that way. And I think it was and part of it is, I think, because my husband and I are much older than our children is kind of that work ethic was so much different when we grew up. We didn't have the technology, you know, we were always outside and um, the opportunities were not was there for us. Whereas the, the younger um, people, there's so many opportunities, you know, where you kind of had to like pick something and, and try to work harder to get better at it. Whereas like um, my daughter was like in this and that and oh my gosh, she was like all over the place. Like she did soccer and she was a sprinter. So she wasn't a distance runner, but if she'd go and run like a 5k, she could still do decent. And I'm like, that is no fair, you little stinker. But it's like, I think she was like in middle school and they had to do like a history, family history type of thing. And that was like back in the day when everything was like dial up for internet and she must've searched my name. And she was like, got so mad at me. She's like, what do you mean, mom? You have a, you know, you have a meat named after you, you were a national champion, you were all this. And I'm like, well, I didn't, I didn't share those things with my kids. Cause I didn't want, I wanted them to be them and not to be, feel like they had to live up to what mom did. I think that's, I think that's fair, especially when you have six national titles and you set three division three records that stood for 20 years. And it's funny mm-hmm. looking at the, at the people who, took your, your titles. One is Missy Butchery, who Correct. has been on the show and also Mary, I'm going to butcher her last name, Prouts. You know, we, we mentioned the top of the show that you did set the standard and all three of those times are still the number two times of all time. You know, what was that feeling then when they were ultimately taken from you You know, I don't even know if I was aware. I was so like out of looking at results and following track that I don't even know if I knew that they were broken. I mean, to me, records are made to be broken, but um, I remember, I don't know when it was. It was several years ago when Missy Buttery was inducted into the GRIAC Hall of Fame. And I was there because Gary was the executive director of that meet. And I remember meeting her for the first time. And it was like, it was such an honor to meet her and to know she's such a great person. And I had met Andrew prior to that. And it was just like, it was just so cool to meet another D3 athlete that was so, so talented. And then, you know, she's just a person like any other person. I think people look at athletes like, you know, they're these like superhumans. And, you know, we're just people like anybody else. We just have, certain things that we do better at. 
And I think that's what people, you know, you put somebody on a pedestal, um, you know, so-and-so is such a great athlete, but then you forget that they're a person and it's just, you know, she is such a down to earth person. And it was such an honor for me to be able to meet her. And it was just fun to talk to her. You know, people those- bring it up that, oh, well, she's the one who broke your records. And I'm like, I don't care. You know, she's awesome. When you ran those times, did you expect them to hold up for 20 years? I don't even think I even thought about that. I guess I was just happy with what I did. And I had other things that I wanted to accomplish. I don't think I even thought of them as, oh, you know, I want these records to hold up. I was just proud. I remember I was telling my husband my junior year when I went into track nationals, we had just completed finals. And that was one of the years that semester that I would have been a 4.0 student. And I had to work really, really hard to get good grades in college. I didn't have like, I just had to study a lot and work super, super hard, way harder than I had to be as a runner. And I remember being at where I could have been a 4.0 and one of the classes I was just like on that border. And I think I just missed having an A in one of my classes. And I remember going to that professor and saying, you know, I don't understand why didn't I get an A in the class? And he's like, well, you were right on that edge of having an A, but I couldn't give you that A because of who you are as an athlete. And I'm like, I was so ticked. This is right before nationals. So I had that fire in me. I'm just going to go and I'm going to just take it on on the track because I was like so upset. I'm like, I worked so hard. And I mean, not that getting a 4.0 is a big deal, but when you have to work really, really hard at your studies, um, it just was kind of like that, that ignition or that little fire, you know, behind me before I left for nationals. I'm like, that's it. I'm just going to, and it wasn't like, I want to win nationals. I want to set records. I'm just going, I'm going, I'm going to go and I'm going to run as well as I possibly can. And it was all history after that, but I was like, okay, you know, but I think that was just kind of like one of those things. I was so competitive in everything that I did and I was so stubborn and I was so mad. I'm like, oh, I didn't get that four-oh from that one because of that one class and it was so close. I mean, so close to getting that four-oh. And then I went and ran nationals and ran really well at nationals. And then it was like, I forgot about it, even though I still remember that to this day. I just remember being in certain things at lacrosse where, you know, we're not going to give you, you're going to just be treated like anybody else. And it's not that I wanted to be treated anything any differently, but I think that, I think that pressure was on some of the professors and even like on officials, like when my shoe, when I lost my shoe, they're like, Oh, we're so sorry. We should have called that race back. And I'm like, it happened, you know, got to move on to the next race. But they're like, I'm like, so I felt like sometimes that uh, people at work, cause they also were like profs at the school. I think that, you know, you, you have that status of you're a national champion. You're a really good athlete that you should be treated differently. And I'm so happy that I was just treated like anybody else on campus. Tori, thank you so much for joining us. You're You're arguably, unarguably one of the D3 uh, greats. And so uh, we've really enjoyed having you. And uh, thanks for your time. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm honored. Okay, that's all for this episode of D3 Glory Days. Thank you guys for tuning in. 
please write a review, share this podcast with a friend, check out the show notes or our website, d3glorydays.com for links to our Venmo account or our merch store. And also please be sure to sign up for our very first newsletter dropping April 13th. You can find a link to do that in the show notes as well. All right, Stu and I are getting back to work. Here's to the glory days.